this weekend. Join Vision CEO Phil Edwards for Sunday Morning Together. Each week, Phil is joined by pastors from across Australia as they minister to us all. Communion, conversation, encouragement and a smorgasbord of great songs help us focus on God's character and promises. Sunday Morning Together with Phil Edwards on Vision and on demand every Sunday in the free Vision Christian Media app. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Now we come to the book of Acts in chapter 9, where we read about the conversion of one of the most influential men of world history, the Apostle Paul. And the major reason I believe that this narrative is included is to show us the characteristics of true conversion. So that you can ask yourself, have I truly been converted? Am I truly a Christ follower? Today. 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 With Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. You make me wanna dance and sing with every single breath I bring. I will bring this offering. You are my wonder, you bring the wonder. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Hi and welcome. My name is Bill and this is Today with Jeff Vines. We'll continue in our series from Acts about how a group of uneducated fishermen came to change the course of world history. Pastor Jeff starts this message by discussing the idea of having a faith that's alive, not just inherited, but our own. As he says, we all need a conversion experience, as he looks at the conversion of Saul, who later became Paul. Here's Pastor Jeff now with today's message. We're in Acts chapter 9. Uh, We're in this incredible series in the book of Acts. And we're in Acts 9, where we're taking a look at the early church, and we're asking questions like, how is it that these men, uh, uneducated fishermen, tax collectors, uh, can have a message that would set the world on fire, that would take over the entire Roman Empire by the third century? Now, let me step off to the side here before we get into this. Let's have a little come to Jesus talk for a second, can we? Is that okay? We have to be very, very careful about becoming so concerned about how the world looks at us that we begin to be cowardice in what it is that Jesus teaches what we believe. I'm all for uh, being salt and light in our world and our conversation being seasoned and to reply gently and kindly. There's never a reason to be unkind, never a reason to be unkind. But don't make that synonymous with cowardice where you won't speak up what it is that God has given to us. At some point, the real God is going to contradict you. I mean, if if God believes everything you do and he happens to agree with everything you agree with, then we got a problem probably. It's probably the God you've created in your own image, not God at all. And someone has said, if you spend your entire life, if you live for people's acceptance, you will die from their rejection. So understand that there is a core part of the message of the gospel that will offend you. 
You will be offensive sometimes even though you're not meaning to. Uh, we used the example a few years ago, if I get you a Dell Carnegie book and a Weight Watchers book for Christmas, you can receive them, but you have to admit that you're fat and obnoxious. <laughs> so sometimes the things Jesus says to you are uh, offensive. He tells you that you're a sinner and there's no way you can be saved, no way you can come to the Father except through the Son, through the atoning sacrifice of a Savior. Now, the reason I say that is because I'm afraid that sometimes you may misunderstand me. I, we need to be kind, never a reason to be unkind, but cowardice has the opposite effect of what we're really after. So you say, Pastor Jeff, why do you start like this? Because there are three types of people in this room right now and in hearing shot of my voice. There are those in the room and that are listening that are truly converted. You have a relationship with Jesus. There are those in the room second who think they're converted but are not. Now, I don't know who they are. And third, there are those who are seeking. They're not sure what all this Christianity stuff is about, but they're here seeking. And by the way, welcome. Glad you're here. And you happen to be here on a weekend that I'm a little bit more direct than I usually am, but still welcome. <laughs> Evidently, everything that glitters is not gold. Even Jesus said that in Matthew 7. Not everyone who comes to me and says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. So that tells me it's possible to believe that you're converted, but you're not. And that should be cause to stop and think because there's this tiny little thing at stake, eternity. Where are you going to spend the major part of the existence of your life? And so now we come to the book of Acts in chapter 9, where we read about the conversion of one of the most influential men of world history, the Apostle Paul. And the major reason I believe that this narrative is included is to show us the characteristics of true conversion so that you can ask yourself, have I truly been converted? Am I truly a Christ follower? So as we look at the story, we're in Acts 9, but we also have to look at Acts 21 and Acts 26 because as we do, the entire story of the conversion, we get piece by piece, Paul's explanation to Agrippa of what actually happened to him and then the actual occurrence in Acts 9. So do I have your attention? In my opinion, this is one of the most important messages I've ever preached. And I need you to hear. But in order to hear, you've got to try hard to hear. I believe when you bring a message like this, there is an evil one who will try to distract you and bring other thoughts into your mind. So here we have the Apostle Paul, who is Saul. He's so aggressive in his trying to eliminate and exterminate the Christians, that he goes to the high priest and gets a piece of paper that gives him permission to go to Damascus into the synagogues, find these pesky little Christians, bind them, arrest them, and bring them back for execution. He receives the letter. He's on his way on the road to Damascus, and this is what the Bible says happens to him. Suddenly, a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. And so it is within this narrative, I believe there are common things that every Christian must experience if they are truly converted. Now, I don't usually ask you to write things down, 
Write things down. There are five of them. The first is this. It is essential that everyone be converted. Everyone. Faith is not inherited from your mom or your dad or your grandparents or your wife or your husband. Neither is it automatic that you have faith just because you attend church. Billy Sunday, one of the most famous preachers ever, said that going to church no more makes you a Christian than going to a garage makes you a car. (laughs) Paul was one of the most religious and faith-filled men you will ever know, and yet he needed converting. And that's why we read his story in Acts 9. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashes. He falls down to the ground. He hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You might say, Jeff, Jeff, why are you talking about this? It's because I hear people all the time say this, just live a moral and decent life. That's all you need to do. Just be a good person. Let me say it again. Just live a moral and decent life. That's all you need to do. Just be a good person. Well, nobody lived a more moral and decent life than Paul. Nobody. He was part of the religious Judaizers who condensed all the law of Moses down to 600. Reams and reams of paper about food laws and work laws and people laws. He lived a good moral life and did so almost flawlessly. In fact, this is his argument in Philippians 3 when he's defending himself to a bunch of people who go to the synagogue. They are synagogue goers. And Paul says to them, you think you're righteous, more religious than me? He says, if anyone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I got more. And then he makes a list. I've been circumcised on the eighth day. What does that prove? That his parents believed in the law. I'm of the people of Israel. He's saying, I'm a true descendant of Abraham, the God of Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's my God. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. You read the Old Testament, you'll discover the tribe of Benjamin were the first to lead the armies of Israel out to battle after the old Benjamin. So Paul says, man, I was even the first one. My family, they were the first one on the fighting lines. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I still speak the Hebrew language. I've not let the, or allowed the Greco-Roman culture to influence me. In regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. You know what that means? It means I am a professional do-gooder. As for zeal, I persecute the church. He says, they don't come as sincere as I am. I am as sincere as they come, and my belief leads to action. And as for righteousness based on the law, I am faultless. In other words, he says, you're looking for a religious person? I'm he. Nobody's more religious than me. And you say, wait a minute, Jeff. I thought I heard you say that it's impossible to keep the law perfectly. Well, it is. Because even if you keep the letter, which you don't, you will violate the spirit. But the Judaizers, of which Saul was a member who became Paul, believed that you could. And they made this long list of do's and don'ts. And if you can just keep them, then you are secure in eternity and you have a relationship with God. The letter was good enough. Now, you have to understand, if you and I were in a room together, I may ask you what you do for a living. You may say, well, I'm a carpenter, I'm a lawyer, I'm a plumber. If you were to ask Paul what he did, he would say, good. I'm just a professional do-gooder. My life, 24 hours a day, I do good stuff. So not only was he moral, he was religious. He was filled with faith. He believed in God. He believed that God was real and active and should be worshiped. He worshiped the God of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. In a real sense, he believed that God was to be feared and adored. He was super. He was uber religious, yet he needed to be converted. If he needed to be converted, so do you. You say, well, Pastor Jeff, why are you going down this path? Because I hear people say this. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it with all your heart, as long as you're sincere. Now, do you realize how foolish that is? Do you think Hitler was sincere? Do you think racists are sincere? 
Do you think that there are religious people in our world who kill others in the name of God, who strap bombs to their body and blow themselves up so that they can take innocent lives? Do you think they're sincere? Do you think there are people who honestly and sincerely believe that if they kill you, then they will go before Allah and in the presence of 72 virgins? I promise you, they are sincere. If you think sincerity makes you right with God, let me give you the first clue. It's because you haven't been converted. I had a neighbor in New Zealand. I shared my faith with him for like three hours and finally he looks at me and this is his response. Hey, that's great, Jeff. If that works for you, good. Do you know how insane that is? What if sacrificing children works for me? What if blowing up abortion clinics works for me? What if strapping a bomb to my body and blowing myself up and taking the lives of innocent people works for me? Saul believed something with all his heart and he was wrong. It says in Acts 8 that godly men buried Stephen and mourned for him deeply. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And I promise you, he did this because he sincerely believed that God wanted him to. Now, it's important we nail this down. Two skaters go out to have a skating trip on the ice. Two. One skates on two inches. Very fragile. The other skates on six inches. The one that skates on two inches says, wow. I am safe and I'm going to have a great time. The one that skates on six inches says, wow, I'm very timid. I'm not sure this is going to hold. One lives, one dies. Which one dies? The one who was absolutely sure she was safe. It has nothing to do with sincerity and everything to do with truth and fact. Faith in the wrong object will not save you no matter how sincere. Paul was as religious as they come. He possessed far more faith than you and I probably ever will. He was far more sincere and dedicated to his cause than probably most of us will ever be. Yet he needed to be converted. Matthew 18, 3 says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of you in the room right now are asking this question. What does it mean to be converted? If you're asking that, I'm worried about you. I'm worried. Sometimes I will ask people, are you a Christian? And they will say, well, of course I am. I've gone to church all my life. That's not what I ask you. Well, of course I am. I'm Presbyterian. Of course I'm Methodist, Episcopalian. I'm Lutheran. What do you mean? That's not what I ask you. I ask you, have you ever been converted? The pattern of conversion is witnessed in Paul's conversion first. Everyone must be converted. No matter how religious or faith-filled you are, no matter what your parents believe or taught you, there has to be a journey that has its climax in conversion, a time when you make a conscious, intentional, deliberate decision to walk away from your old life and go to your new life, where if you were to see both of them in eternity, you would know this one compares in no way to this one. It's a newness of life. You don't just fade into faith. You cross a definitive line, and it's called conversion. Second, true conversion requires an intellectual journey. You can't be converted unless intellectually you begin to think. Now, hold on. Conversion is more than the intellect, but it's not less. The mind must be engaged. The intellect must affirm a few things. You can't base your conversion on some experience you had somewhere, there must be intellectual information with it. You have to get to the point in your life where you realize there's no salvation outside of Christ, that he is who he said he was, 
That he died on the cross for your sins. That he rose again. That he defeated death. That he secured your place with God. You must engage rationally to the gospel and its message. And if you never have, you've never been converted. Notice the subtlety in this narrative in Acts 9.3. Suddenly, a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, why is it? That Saul and Paul say, who are you? Now, come on, if you walked out of here today and this kind of experience happened to you, about two hours later, you're going to say what? Did that really happen? What just happened to me? So Paul says, okay, who is this? And he's told that it's Jesus, the one he's persecuting. Now, what I like about the narrative is that God knows that Saul is going to doubt this in a few days. And God actually honors that. That's the problem with supernatural experiences. They are supernatural. They're out of the natural. So it's natural for you to say, did that just happen? God understood that Paul would need intellectual confirmation. So he gives Paul some solidifying instructions in verse six. He says, Paul, as he's trembling and astonished, and he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. So God is working behind the scenes here to spring from this supernatural experience to a more objective word of truth. Now, the reason I stopped there is because vision is not enough. Come on, folks. You can have some kind of vision and think you had some bad lasagna the night before. There's got to be explanation to it. Otherwise, you might think that your mind is playing tricks on you or that your friends are messing with you or that Steven Spielberg is somewhere back in the shadows. So what does God do? He confirms it by other witnesses who saw this thing happen, which is important in Hebrew culture, and the cooperation of another that could only be explained by the working of the hand of God. So let me explain what happens. I won't read it word for word, and then I'll read the last paragraph. As God is sending Paul to Damascus, at the same time, Jesus has another disciple living in Damascus called Ananias. So he gives Ananias a vision and a dream too. And Ananias says, here I am, Lord, because he knows who's talking to him. And he says, what do you want me to do? And Jesus says, Ananias, I want you to get up and I want you to go to a street called Straight and I want you to go into the house of Judas and I want you to ask for one named Saul of Tarsus because he's praying there right now. And Jesus says, Ananias, I've given him a vision and in the new vision I'm going to give him, he's going to see a man named Ananias coming to lay hands on him so he can receive his sight. So Ananias, it's important that you be there. Ananias says, whoa, Nelly, I've heard about this guy. He kills Christ followers. In fact, he's gotten special permission from the people right here in Damascus to bind and arrest anybody who talks about the way, about Christ. So are you sure you didn't get your wires crossed? And of course, God says to Ananias, just do what I tell you to do. Go. He's a chosen vessel of mine. He's going to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Now, here's how that finishes. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. Now, how would you like that to be the inviting line for you to follow Jesus? Right there. Come follow me. I want to show you how much you get to suffer. Huh? Those who have been truly converted say yes. Say yes. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, had sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, immediately the Bible says, there fell from his eyes something like scales 
And he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So God confirms Saul's experience by having Ananias, an outside agent, tell Paul what happened to him, and he wasn't even actually there, which is a confirmation of the supernatural event. Now, I want you to notice something. It's subtle, but it's important. After that happened, Paul's still not ready to go and preach the gospel. Why? He still doesn't have the objective truth that he needs to explain his subjective experience. So verse 20, the first part says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Why does he do that? Why does he spend time with them there? Because he's being discipled. They're helping him understand the intellectual, rational thought behind the supernatural event and who Jesus actually is. And then finally, in the second part of verse 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. That's the content of the gospel. But it doesn't just mean that he's the son of God. It means he's the only way to reach the father is through the son. That the fundamental aspect of true conversion is that you realize the only way to reach God is through the atoning sacrifice of his son. So if you're in the room right now and you're saying, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think there are other ways to God. Let me tell you why. It's because you haven't been converted. Christianity is more than thinking, but it's not less. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, some of you became a Christian when you went to youth camp and you had the heebie-jeebies. You had some kind of emotional experience and you felt good. Now, hey, wait a minute. Now, this is good stuff. You felt something. Your friends were getting baptized. They were coming to Jesus and you thought, man, I got to do this too. And you legitimately felt something to moving to the hand of God on you. And you ran forward and you said, I do, I will, let's go. And you were baptized. And that's a good thing. Others of us, about 10% of us in the room, probably people like me and Versace down here and some of the rest of you, our journey had to be more intellectual. We had questions and tensions we had to solve. We had to solve this problem of God and pain and suffering and heaven and hell and who is Jesus and can I trust the words of the scripture? We had to solve those things first and because we were able to, then we had our experience later and continue to have them today. But if you just have some kind of supernatural experience without intellectual information, it may have just been bad lasagna. There has to be an intellectual, rational thought about who Jesus is. Some of you say, well, wait a minute. I disagree, Pastor Jeff. I don't like where you're going with this. The Holy Spirit just zapped some people. I agree. But what did Jesus say about the Holy Spirit's primary role? It's in John 16. He says, I tell you the truth. It's good that I'm going away because unless I do, the advocate will not come. But if I go, I'll send him. Now, what's his job? When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. So when you're truly converted, you make an intellectual decision about three things because the Spirit is convincing you of these three things. What are they? One, sin. You can never be good enough. Ever. No matter how good you are. All religions say differently. If you work hard enough, pray long enough, travel to this city, rub this stone, then you can be accepted before God. The gospel comes along and says, when the spirit of God comes into you, it opens your eyes and you get it. You can never be religious enough. You have to depend on the grace of God on the cross of Jesus Christ. So your idea about sin totally changes. Besides that, it begins to dawn on you. Wait a minute. If there's another way to God other than through the cross, then one, Jesus is a liar because he said, no one comes to the Father except through the Son, and God is a masochist. If there's another way, rather than the all-atoning, all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ, then God didn't need to do this. 
You learn about sin. You come to rational conclusions about it, that we're all sinners. I am, you are, we all are. You also have your eyes open to righteousness. You know that you cannot achieve it on your own. You can't be righteous. And finally, your eyes are open to judgment. When you stand in the judgment line, when you give account for the life that you live, you think God's going to grade on a curve. You think as long as you get in line behind really bad people, you're okay. But it has nothing to do with your goodness or badness. It has everything to do with Jesus walks up and looks at you and looks at the Father and says, he's with me. She's with me. Yes, they're sinners, but they believe that the only way to the Father was through the Son, and they gave me their lives. And because they've confessed me before men, I've confessed them before the Father. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. Here's how you know you're converted. You've been saved by the grace of God, so your guilt is gone. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The automatic result of someone who's been cleansed of the guilt, this power of God's Spirit comes into you and gives you the will to conquer sin in your life. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.